see everybody. We're going to continue our study tonight in Leviticus. So Leviticus chapter 24 tonight. And Father, we thank you for your word. And we need to hear your word, Lord. And I think a lot of people would not get what we're doing, but, you know, why would we be, we'd be reading Leviticus of all things? But we know something, that your word is alive. And it all speaks ultimately of Jesus. So, Lord, yeah, we're here to learn about an Old Testament book, but more importantly, we're here to know Jesus better. So, Lord, speak into our lives. Give us like a solid and firm foundation in our faith. Teach us corporately. But also, Lord, would you, would you teach us individually? Would you have those prophetic little nuggets for each one of our lives tonight? And so, Lord, we just pray that you would take over, that you'd be the teacher tonight, and your word would speak. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're in chapter 24, and if all goes according to plan, um, we should be done with Leviticus by the end of this month. We have four chapters left and f- four weeks in this month, so we're, let's try to, or four Wednesdays, we'll, we'll try to finish the book of Leviticus by the end of September. And uh, then we will be here, uh, my wife and I will be here through the mid-November, so I'll just probably finish out the Pentateuch real quick. Uh, I'm just kidding. We're not going to go through Numbers and Deuteronomy. Okay, back to Leviticus chapter 24. Um, Yeah, this is an interesting chapter. I wanted to just take a couple of minutes. Um, The teacher in me wanted to kind of review some things on a very broad stroke because Leviticus... Leviticus... Leviticus can be very detail-oriented, a lot of stuff happening, but I wanted to just actually remind you of the context of which Leviticus is happening. Keep in mind that Leviticus is the sequel to Exodus, and at the end of Exodus, as the children of Israel are camped out at Mount Sinai, and Moses has come down from the mountain with the law from God to the people, Not only did he get the Ten Commandments, he got the Levitical law, but he also got the plans for the tabernacle. And so I'm not going to go into all of that, but at the end of Exodus, they erect this thing called the tabernacle, an elaborate tent, basically. But what was special about it was, is that it had a courtyard, it had the the tabernacle proper, which was this big tent with two compartments. And in the second compartment, known as the Holy of Holies, was the Ark of the Covenant and the Mercy Seat. And it was above there that something of the actual presence of God hovered and dwelt. And God was basically saying, I want to be right in the midst of your camp, right in the midst of my people. And and so that's kind of launched Leviticus because here's God in the middle of his people, but God is holy and awesome. And so what's the main theme of Leviticus? For a thousand bonus points that mean nothing. Hol- yeah, I heard a lot of people. Holiness. The holiness of God. Super practical because here's this holy God. And so now, how do his holy people approach and worship a holy God? And then how do his holy people live lives that are um, acceptable to this holy God? And in, in a very broad stroke way, that's kind of what Leviticus is about. And we are here in the latter chapters of the book dealing with that, that theme of living a holy life. You know, a life that is separated to God. 
separated from the world and separated to God. And so he's dealing with their lives in a very practical way. Now, I don't know if anybody read ahead. Chapter 24 is not a long chapter. It has two basic movements to it, just to kind of give you a a quick preview of the chapter. It has two basic movements. In verses 1 through 9, he's going to talk about some daily and weekly duties for the priests having to do with the tabernacle I just spoke of. And then in verses 10 through 23, I have it in my notes as the blasphemy incident. There's an incident that happens. We get a very rare narrative here in the book of Leviticus where there's kind of a pause and like something happens and they have to address it and it actually kind of launches into more laws being given out. And we'll talk about that. But let's look at this first section, uh, verses 1 through 9, dealing with some daily slash weekly duties for the priests that were uh, ministering in and around uh, the tabernacle. So, quickly, I mentioned the tabernacle. Let me just, uh, just again, uh, give you some specs on it. The tabernacle itself had a courtyard around it, about 175 foot in feet on one side, about um, 75 feet on the other side. Uh, and then within that courtyard at the very front on the eastern side, the eastern side was the only place that had an entrance. There would be the brazen altar and then the, the brass laver with water. If you were to go into the tabernacle, and the priest would do this, they'd go into the tabernacle on the north wall. Wait, wait hold on. Never eat shredded wheat. Eat. Never eat. The south wall would be the candelabra or the golden lampstand. And then directly across from that would be the table of showbread. And then right butted up against the the big curtain or veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies was the altar of incense. And so um, just kind of maybe jog your memory on that real quick. So let's look at verse 1, chapter 24. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Command the people of Israel to bring pure oil from beaten olives... For the lamp, that a light may be kept burning regularly or continually. Outside the veil of the testimony in the tent of meeting, Aaron shall arrange it from uh, evening to morning before the Lord regularly. It shall be a statute forever. Throughout your generations, he shall arrange the lamps on the lampstand of pure gold before the Lord regularly. So just very simply what these verses are saying is this. They were to, the people were to supply this very pure olive oil. It would be brought to the priests. The priests would keep the oil in the lamps that were in that golden lampstand, having to refill it every day, having to trim the wicks every day. The point was is that keep a continual flow of oil in this thing so that there will continually, regularly be light shining in the tabernacle. There was only one light source in the tabernacle. It was this golden lampstand. Does that make sense? In essence, that's what he's talking about. Now, if you remember our study through Exodus, and I'm not, put your mind at ease, I'm not going to review the whole thing, but I do want to just remind us of something about the tabernacle. What's wonderful about the tabernacle, every piece of the tabernacle is a great big object lesson of Jesus. It's all a picture, ultimately, of Jesus. It is so packed, jammed with typology and pictures. It's an amazing, glorious, awesome study that we've touched on in the past. But do you remember what the golden lampstand speaks of? Jesus. That was your, I just told you the answer. You got to pay attention. It's Jesus. 
It speaks of Jesus. The gold, you guys know that the golden lampstand was pure gold, not like a mold, pure gold that was beaten into form, like hand beaten. And you think about, it speaks of Jesus, pure gold. It speaks of his divinity, yet he was beaten. It speaks of Jesus in that Jesus is what? The light of the world. John 8, 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. John 9, uh, uh, 5, again, Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. In John 1, 4, it says this, in him, listen, was life, and the life was the light of men. Jesus is the light of the world. How many of you guys have ever heard that before? How many of you guys say amen? He is. He's the light of the world. But do you ever just think about what the heck that means? I was just trying to think about that in the last couple of days. You know, if there's no light, there's no life. Try to imagine the, the earth with no sun. It wouldn't survive, would it? it has, there has to be light so that there's warmth, so that there's light, so that there can be photosynthesis, so there can be growth, so there can be light. Like, there, without light, there's no life. It's impossible. Now, he's not speaking about Jesus being the light physically of the world, although Steve, uh, I think Steve mentioned it, or maybe I heard it in another awesome, amazing teaching that wasn't Steve, but the, the fact in Revelation, when we're in heaven with the Lord, the new Jerusalem, there's no sun. Did you guys know that? Because the Lord is actually the light of the whole place. That's an amazing, that'll just tweak your brain. But when it says Jesus is the light of the world, it's not like he's the physical light. Well, then what does that mean? Just like a physical earth could not survive or have life without physical light, spiritually speaking, listen, this world is dark. This world is broken. This world is full of sin. And the only life that is in this world is found in the person of Jesus. Amen? He is the light in the darkness. If it weren't for Christ, we would all still be groping in the darkness, looking for purpose, looking for life. And listen, people, the world is still doing that to a large degree. Groping for meaning, groping for purpose. Why are we here? What is this all about? What is this gnawing emptiness in my soul? It's because Jesus is the light of life. He is the one that when you open up your heart to him, he comes shining in and he now brings light and life into a dark and dead soul. Amen? How many of you could say, I was dead and blind and I, and I was in darkness, but then Jesus came into my life and gave me the light of life. Amen? That was all of us, guys. He's the light of the world. That's what that ultimately speaks of. But it also speaks of you and me. Because in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, Jesus said to us, he said, you're the light of the world. Wait a minute. Which one is it? Is he the light of the world or are we the light of the world? Yes. It's both. Jesus is the ultimate light. He is what everybody longs for, needs, is, 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 is groping for, whether they think it is or not. It's Jesus. But Jesus works through his people, you guys. For whatever reason, he has chosen to take, to take his light in the world via you. And the only light we have to offer is not some awesome light that we have within ourselves. It's Jesus in us, amen? 
It's Jesus in us that brings that light and life to wherever we go in this dark world, in your dark workplace, in your dark school, in the dark, wherever we go where there's sin and brokenness and Jesus is living in you. You come into that situation, whether you realize you're emanating that light or not, if Christ is living in you, you have a light about you. You have a light within you that is shining. Guys, we are the light of the world. Amen? He said, don't hide your light. Put it, you know, he, he talked about you don't light a lamp and then put a basket over or hide it. Light was meant to be out there so that it can give light in the darkness. Now back to our text, what, what, was, what was needed for that physical lampstand to keep going? It needed oil. Oil in the Bible is always a type of the Holy Spirit. And guys, listen, we, can, we, we want to say, yeah, oh, I, I, I want to be in the light of the world. I want to have Jesus radiate through me. Well, then you know what you need? You need a continual refilling of the oil of the Holy Spirit. Just like, guys, you understand, like, the oil would run out, and they'd have to go in every day and refill it, and then they'd trim the wick and this and that. It, it, there's stuff that had to happen to keep that light really shining. I love how Paul says in Ephesians 5.18, jot that down if you're not familiar with it. It's a really important verse. In Ephesians 5.18, he says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. He actually says, don't be drunk with wine, which is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And he's making a comparison. It's not necessarily a teaching on not being drunk, although the Bible does teach that. What he's saying is, if a person is filled with alcohol, you can tell by the way they talk, by the way they act, by the way they try to walk. We say, we say, that's the alcohol talking, or that's the alcohol doing that. Why? They're being controlled by it. So in contrast to that, he says, but don't be like that, but be controlled, filled with what? The Holy Spirit. Now listen, the Holy Spirit is not oil. The Holy Spirit is not water. Those things picture the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. He's God. So we can't think of him as some physical oil or water or something filling us up. What does it mean to be filled with him then? I believe it means to be fully submitted to him, and he's the one controlling my life. And that means it's kind of a twofold thing. I got to do my part. My part is this, to just give him control. Say, Lord, I, I want more of you. I want to want more of you. Lord, I want to surrender every area of my life to you. But then he's got to come in and empower me and fill me with his presence. Amen? You know, there's got to be oil, but there's also got to be a spark to keep the oil lit. Some Christians need to be lit. Like you've got oil, but you need the spark. You need the baptism of the Holy Spirit. John came and baptized with water. He says, but there's one coming after me who will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. And on the day that they received the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, they began to speak and praise God in different languages. And there was these something visible that looked like a flame of fire above their heads. And there's a big difference between having the Holy Spirit because when the moment you're born again, the Holy Spirit comes into you. But there is a different experience between having the Holy Spirit reside in you and being on fire and having the baptism and the coming upon of the Holy Spirit on your life. Amen? We can go through the book of Acts. Or you can just say amen, make it a lot quicker. I'm just kidding. But guys, the reason I'm pausing here is because I think one of the greatest needs of the church is not more programs or better marketing or a better Instagram account 
And that'll really get the church moving. No, it won't. (laughs) Chuck all that stuff. You know what we need? We need to be people that are submitted to and baptized and filled with and lit on fire by the Holy Spirit. Because we can't live this life on our own effort. We can't be good enough Christians on our own effort. We can't be bold in our own effort. We need his Holy Spirit working in us. And we need to become frequently and say, God, I need a fresh pouring in of your spirit into my life and, and emptying out of me of my life and just more of you. And Lord, fill me and set me back on fire. Does that resonate with anybody? That resonates with me. And let's just pray right now. Let's not even go another moment into the Bible study. Bow your head, bow your heart right now. And if that is resonating with you in any way, just pray with me. Say, Father, I want more of your Holy Spirit. I know you are in me, but would you set my life on fire for you? Fill us again, Holy Spirit. Come, Lord, into this place right now and just fill us up that we might shine your light into this dark world. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, you guys are dismissed. Just kidding, you're not dismissed. Don't be silly. Verse five. You shall take fine flour and bake 12 loaves from it, two-tenths of an epaph, oh, okay, shall be in each loaf, and you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile, on the table of pure gold before the Lord. And you shall put um, pure Frankenstein, frankincense, On each pile that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion, as a food offering to the Lord. Every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever. It it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place. Since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offerings, a perpetual due. So from verses 5 to 9, another duty that the the priests had were not only daily tending to the candles, but also weekly tending to the bread. Now, if you remember, <clears throat> Exodus chapter 25 says that on that north side of, of the tabernacle against the, the curtain there or the wall would be this table. It was about two and a half feet high, three feet long, about a foot and a half wide, and it was covered with gold. But what was significant was not necessarily the table, it was on the table. And what they were supposed to do is each week the priest would bake these, probably these round little loaves of bread, and they would make two piles, six in each pile. Exodus chapter 25 refers to these as the bread of the presence, the bread of the presence. And again, it's chock full of symbolism. I just will give you a couple of things. The bread of the presence, it, it was basically signifying each, you know, 12 loaves spoke of the 12 tribes of Israel. Directly across from it was the light shining upon it. And as if, it's, as if God was saying, you are always in my presence, you are always on my mind. I'm always with you. I always see you. And by the way, that is true of us too. Did you know that God's word says that he thinks about us about the same amount as there is sand on the sea of all the seas and all the world? You ever tried to count sand? Anybody ever legitimately tried to count sand? I've tried. I was like, okay, Bible, I'll take you up on that. And I'll do a little bit of hand scoop of one, two, like, forget it. The point is, is that there's never a moment when you're not on God's mind. There's never a moment when he takes his eyes off of you. You're in his presence. He loves you. Amen? 
is the bread of the presence, but it was also provision. It provided for the priests. Um, they were able to eat that. So it was there as like a remembrance thing, but then they had like a double kind of a, a win-win thing. So they also got to eat that at the end of the week as a provision for the family. And I do want to say this, that bread also, by the way, speaks of Jesus. John chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus said, I am the what? The bread of life. I am the bread of life. In fact, let me read to you from uh, John chapter 6, verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Listen, whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me will never thirst. And in verse 47, he says this, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Jesus is the bread of life, and he, listen, he's our provision Just like that bread was a provision for the priest, listen, Jesus is the bread that provides for us. What does he provide for us? Salvation. Whoever eats of him, and he was for sure speaking metaphorically, like read John 6. He wasn't being like, don't actually eat my skin. He was saying, I'm the bread of life if you eat of me. And he was saying, and then he uses in another phrase, if you believe in me. So he makes the connection. If you put your faith in Christ, he's the one who comes in as the provider of salvation for our souls. Amen? The thing we're hungering for and longing for and thirsting for in our souls that we can't put our finger on, just like he's the light of the world, he's the bread of life. And when we taste of Jesus, we finally, finally, finally say, yes, he's the one my soul was hungry for. It wasn't another man in my life. It wasn't another woman in my life. It wasn't another hobby in my life. It wasn't more money, less money. It wasn't, you know, a better wave or this or that. It was Jesus all along, the one I was longing for. He not only provides salvation, guys, can I say this? And now I'm speaking to all of us who know Christ as our Savior. He's not only our salvation, he's our satisfaction. And it is a red-letter day in your calendar when, as a Christian, you get this. That even now that you're a born-again believer in Christ, that what you still hunger for is Jesus. It's, it, it's still the, he's still the answer. It's still Jesus. It's not like, oh, I got saved. Now I'll chase all these other things in life and hopefully they'll satisfy me. No, they won't. It's still Jesus. What you're hungry for tonight is more Jesus. Closeness with Jesus. Satisfaction that can only come from Jesus. And I want to encourage you, man. Spend time with Jesus. <laughs> Go eat of him, so to speak. Don't nibble. (laughs) Go just have a meal. Just go commune with him. Find, make, prioritize time in your day to just be with Jesus. And what you'll find is, like, you know what? Watching Fox News and CNN all day doesn't really satisfy my soul. The best wave on this island doesn't satisfy your soul. Nothing wrong with catching a good wave or having a nice truck or any of these things or pursuits that we're after. I always use the truck analogy. Is that a little subliminal thing that maybe I'm longing for a new truck? Like I'm exposing my heart here? Anyway, it's Jesus. It's always been Jesus. It'll always be Jesus. What you're hungry for is Jesus. Not another person, not another hobby, but him. Well, before I move on to the blasphemy incident, I was thinking about this because This may sound really deep to you, but chapter 24 comes after chapter 23. Write that down. No, I'm just kidding. 
But I do look at things like that. I do look at the flow. Okay, how does this fit in with the previous chapter? How does it go into the next chapter? I'm always kind of looking at that kind of stuff. And it's interesting to me that, that coming off of chapter 23, listen, what was chapter 23? Chapter 23 was this amazing chapter dealing with the annual feasts of Israel. These annual Except, you know, wonderful, one, only one of them was like a heavy one, but the chapter actually ends with the most celebratory and f- festive of all the feasts, which was the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles, right? Do you guys remember that from last week? Where they would just come and they bring in the harvest and they're just, it was just like this week-long celebration and awesome. And it's, it's just interesting to me that after these seven, like, awesome, big deal, grandiose celebratory feasts. He goes right into these daily, weekly, kind of mundane duties of the priests that are like hidden away in the tabernacle where no one can even see you. And I thought, that's interesting. Here's why I find that interesting, guys, because listen, there is a rhythm to spiritual life. There's a rhythm to spiritual life. And there are times in our spiritual life and there are seasons in our spiritual life where there are these high, exciting, breakthrough, emotional, glorious times and we love those and we long for those, but you can't live and die on those because most of the life is just daily and weekly. And if you never catch the flow that most of the Christian life is just a daily, weekly duty and sometimes repetitive and sometimes just kind of ordinary life, you're going to get frustrated. And you can sometimes see this in brand new believers in Christ when they come to Jesus and like all of a sudden, like their eyes are open to everything and everything. The sky's bluer than normal and food tastes better and like every, life makes sense and relationships are good and they sense just the presence of Jesus holding them in their lap. You know, it's just awesome. But then a few weeks go by and it's like, I don't feel him. Where is he? I didn't hear him speak to me today. And where is he gone? And they kind of panic. And it's times like that we ought to say, guys, here's the thing. Most of the Christian life is just day to day. Does that make sense? It's daily prayer time. It's daily time in the word. It's weekly fellowship with other Christians. It's just kind of living life in the not so exciting, in the almost, I dare say, mundane, the more like just kind of trudging almost, but you just keep going kind of. Guys, that's part of the rhythm of the Christian life. Is this making sense? It's not always just the big high moments and breakthroughs and, and you know, like victory and, you know, like dancing around. There's the, there's the, the, the normalness of it all. This is what I want to say about this. The Christians who don't get this don't do well in the long run. The Christians who don't get this don't do well in the long run. One of my favorite verses in the entire Bible, especially in the New Testament, is Acts chapter 2, verse 42, when the church is brand new. They're brand new believers. they just freshly filled with the Holy Spirit. And no one tells them this, but intuitively they just decide that they're going to devote themselves to four things. The teaching of the apostles, the word of God, to fellowship, to prayer, and communion. It says they devoted themselves to those. Those were the non-negotiables of their life. Being with other Christians in community. Being in the word of God. Taking communion. Prioritizing prayer in their life. I always find that interesting that, that, 
that no teacher taught them to do that. They just intuitively knew once they got saved, these are the important things. And then they guarded that time. And I'm here to tell you, the Christian man or the Christian woman that makes these things a priority in their life over time does well. Please hear me. The Christian that makes church, Bible reading, prayer, communion optional is the Christian that over the, I'm not saying you're not going to heaven. I'm not saying you're not a Christian. What I'm saying is the fruit diminishes, the stability diminishes. There's more of an up and down this. They're in and out. They're everywhere. But the Christians that are at church every week, that sounds very self-serving to say as a pastor. Come to church every week. I don't even care if you come to this church, but go to church. We need to be in church. Whether it's a home church, whether it's a, a big church, what, but we have to be. God designed us to be in community with one another. We have to be in the word. We have to be in prayer. We have to take communion. That is our lifeline. And so when we treat that as something optional or, listen, just not as important as other things, just been in the game long enough to see in my own life and in the life of others, the ones that make those things non-negotiable are the ones that over time are very strong in the Lord. And the ones that treat those things as, ah, maybe I'll go to church, ah, maybe I'll go to prayer, ah, maybe I'll go. There's just a less of a stability and fruitfulness in the long haul. So, amen? Okay, so thanks for indulging my little rant. Let's, let's go through this next section, and this actually will go pretty quickly here. So I want to read the whole thing because it's kind of meant to go together. And, and you'll, you'll see the flow. Verse 10. Now, an Israelite woman's son, whose father was an Egyptian, so this guy's half Israelite, half Egyptian, he went out among the people of Israel, and the Israelite's woman's son and a man of Israel fought in the camp. And the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name and cursed. And they brought him to Moses. Excuse me. His mother's name was Shalometh, the daughter of Debri, of the tribe of Dan, and they put him in custody until the will of the Lord should made be made clear to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, bring out, uh, uh, bring out of the camp the one who cursed, and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head, and let all the congregation stone him. And speak, and speak to the people of Israel, saying, whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death, and all the congregation shall stone him, the sojourners as well as the native. When the, he blasphemes the name, shall he, be, he shall be put to death. Whoever takes a human life shall be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life will make it good life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor, as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury has been given a person shall be given to him. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good. Whoever kills a person shall be put to death. You shall have a same rule for the sojourner and for the, na the native. For I am the Lord your God. So Moses spoke to the people of Israel, and listen to this. They brought out the man into the camp, the one who had cursed and stoned him with stones. Thus the people of Israel did as the Lord commanded. That's a heavy story. So whilst this bringing down of the law is happening, I'll just summarize it again. This half Egyptian, half Israelite guy 
gets into a fight with another Israelite. And we don't know what kind of fight it was, if it was a verbal fight, if it sounds like more like, like an altercation, right? In the course of that fight, this guy blasphemes the name of God and curses. And it's almost like, you know, like the proverbial thing in the movie where like something crazy happens and like the, the record like gets scratched, like, and everybody just stops like, whoa, what just happened? A bunch of witnesses heard it. They take the, take the, the guy to Moses. Did you blaspheme? Yeah, he curses. Okay, put him in. They're like, I don't know what to do. Moses says, I don't really know what to do. So they put him in custody until they could figure out what the Lord's will was. By the way, little side note, that's great leadership. When you don't know what to do, it's best sometimes to just pray on it before you make a move. I think this is a great word of wisdom, by the way, for moms and dads. When your little one does something and you're like, I know that was wrong, but I'm not exactly sure how to react right now. Is that a spanking? Or is that just a talking to? Or do I show mercy? Sometimes it's best to just put your kid in custody for a while. Put them in their room. You go cool off and pray and ask God what to do. Ask for wisdom and he'll show you and then you go and take care of it. I wish I would have done that more. Usually I just spanked Josh because he was the firstborn. So he just got all the whoopings. No, I'm just kidding. Not kidding, kidding, not kidding. Um, Now that I'm older, you know, a little more wisdom. But guys, seriously, when you don't know what to do, stop. Don't just do something. Stop and pray and see what the Lord, maybe in your business, you don't know what to do. Maybe in some other big decision of your life, you're not sure what to do. Stop. Go pray. Seek God. So Moses seeks the Lord, and basically the verdict was this. He says, kill him. Stone him to death. And then, by the way, and we'll talk about this in a second, that kind of opened the door for some other laws to come out and some principles, which we'll just lightly touch on since they're kind of actually something we dealt with earlier on in Exodus. But here's what I want to say about that. Does anybody kind of think that was harsh? I mean, honestly, don't, you don't have to give the right answer. Just give the, like, I kind of, like, I read that and I'm like, really, God? Like, stone him to death for, here's what you need to understand. When it says that this guy blasphemed the name, and notice that it says the name. This is talking about the name of God. You know that the name carries with it a significance. It speaks of the person and its character. I've got Jewish friends that um, if you email them, and in the email, I got kind of reprimanded. Our tour guide to Israel one year was like, stop saying the name of God in your emails. I've got all these thousands of emails that I can't delete. They will not delete the email if the word God is in there. So the, many Jewish people, if you have Jewish friends, they'll say G hyphen D. Then trash that baby because you don't need to save it because it doesn't say God. It just says. But that's the idea. Like they, they reverenced the name because it spoke of who he was so much that when this guy blasphemes his name, they're like, whoa. But this is what he didn't do. The scenario is not that they were in this fight and in the heat of the moment, he used the name of God like a cuss word. That's not what happened. It's way more severe than that. The idea behind this is he knowingly, purposely, and from his heart speaks out a blasphemous thing against God and calls down a curse, in a sense, damning the name of God. That's something entirely different. It was intentional. It was his heart. He was just getting it off. He was exploding and getting it off his chest. That was different. So they bring him in, and the sentence was to execute him. That was severe. 
we could talk a lot about that, but I just, I think that the main point, I think that the most pertinent thing is this. What happened to that guy physically is really a picture of what happens to anyone spiritually if they blaspheme the name of God in that way. Jesus said that all sin will be forgiven except for one, and that is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And again, that's not saying a cuss word or saying something you know, trite about the Holy Spirit. It's a knowing, intentional rejection of the work of the Holy Spirit. And the work of the Holy Spirit is to bring people to Jesus. Example, Acts chapter 7, Stephen, I can't give the details, but just check it later. Stephen is giving this eloquent defense of the faith to the same group of leaders that crucified Christ. And as he's going through the history of Israel, he just stops and he says, you always resist the work of the Holy Spirit. And he, he tags him on this. You look so spiritual and holy, but you resist the work of the Holy Spirit. That's what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. You say, no, 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 no. Did you know that that's the only thing that lands somebody in hell? It's not smoking. It's not sex outside of marriage. It's not doing drugs. Those are all sins. Those are all that wrong, of course. But the sin that keeps a person out of heaven is rejecting the one who died for their sins, to pay for their sins. When you just say, no, I don't need you, God. I don't need you, God. I don't need you. Because in essence, you're saying, I'll just do it myself. And nobody can stand before God in their own righteousness. Jesus said, and I think with a tear in his eye, in John 8, he says, unless you believe in me, you will die in your sins. That is one of the heaviest things I think Jesus ever said. What happened to this guy physically, the physical stoning was sending a very important message. And there's a very real application. There comes a day, if you reject the work of the Lord, you keep saying no to God, you keep saying no to God. And I don't know where that line is, and nor do you in a person's life. God knows. But if you just reject Jesus enough and say no to God enough, he will honor your request. And there will come a day when you will be separated from him forever. So, by the way, those of you who, and I've had people come to me and say, I th- man, I think I committed the ultimate you know, sin. I blasphemed the Holy Spirit. I said this, and I don't know what I'm going to do. By virtue of the fact that you're worried about it and you're here, you didn't do it. That makes sense? If you were like, I don't care. I'll do whatever I want. Then I'd be like, ooh, that's different. But when the person's like, oh, no, I think I did something. Did I commit the ultimate sin? By virtue of the fact that you're asking me, No. Do you believe in Jesus? Oh, yeah. Do you love him? Yeah. You're good. Stop worrying. Okay, so let's, let's get to this last part. Again, I don't want to take a lot of time on it, but he launches into, um, oh, by the way, I did, want to, I did want to note this. Notice that all the witnesses had to lay their hands on him. They couldn't just accuse him and the guy get stoned. There was due process. And, and in Deuteronomy and later on, we'll talk about how to God, it's very important that there's Two or three witnesses collaborating something. You couldn't just willy-nilly accuse somebody and whatever. That's why they were searching for two or three witnesses against Jesus, right? And they couldn't find any to agree on anything. So you had to have these witnesses. They couldn't just stand from afar and go, that's the guy over there, but I don't want to get involved. No, you had to get involved. You had to put your name on the paper. You had to be in public and say, if this guy's going to die for something he did, 
You better be willing to say, yeah, I heard him, and go on record, right? I mean, that's, this is serious business. And then they were all to participate in the actual stoning of this guy. Let me ask you this. Do you think that was a deterrent? You think the kids that were watching were like, what did he do? I do not want to do that. This sent a very, very clear message. And guys, there's a principle here too, what God is saying about justice and judgment. And what he's saying is, look, the punishment has to fit the crime. And if you take a life, no one's allowed to take a life. That's murder. He's talking about murder, by the way, not manslaughter, not killing in war or something like that. This is murder. And if you play God and take another person's life, then your life is going to be required of you. That's what he says. That's what God says. That's the equal price. And then he talks about fracture for fracture, tooth for tooth. I don't know for sure if that's like, okay, he punched my tooth out. Okay, line him up and you get to punch his tooth out. The idea behind it is the punishment has to fit the crime. There's an equality. There's a justice. There's a right response to what has happened. Does that make sense? And I'm sure guys could bring a lot more light into that. But all I could think about, and I'm actually going to end on this, believe it or not, all I could think about in this was Matthew chapter 5. Because I can get into that law part of it and be like, okay, so it's right. I have a right. Okay, you punch my tooth out. I get to punch your tooth out. I don't get to punch two teeth, but I do get to at least punch one out. You slap my face, I slap your face. My eye's gone, your eye's gone. You sued me, I sue you. You know, like, oh, th- th- there's some room, e- equity, my rights. I've got a, a, a God-given right to do these things, to retaliate, and I, I'm perfectly within my rights. Yeah, that's true. There's justice. He was setting up justice within the, within the community. But then Jesus' words have to go and ruin everything. I say that tongue-in-cheek. Please don't quote me or something. Matthew chapter 5, just listen, I'll start reading in verse 38. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you to take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who begs from you. Don't refuse the one who would borrow from you. You've heard it said you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you might be the sons of your Father who's in heaven. He makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers... What more are you doing than other people? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Honestly, I'm not even sure what to do with that. That is so crazy to me. My brother-in-law, Nick, he's an awesome guy. He loves Jesus. He tells this story one time about he was haggling for this purchase he was going to make in the Arab Quarter of Jerusalem, old city Jerusalem. And if you've ever, anybody ever gone there? Anybody ever haggled for purchase? It's just, it's very animated. It's very funny. You always start real low and go from there. Well, he was buying a cup or something, and he went real low on the price. And the guy slapped him on the face. (laughs) He didn't, like, pull back and, like, whack. It was more like, oh, you're like, oh, I'm so offended. You know, like, this kind of, like, playful little pop. You know, like, and my brother-in-law was just, like, you know, taken back. And then Nick, classic Nick, that's my brother-in-law. He goes, 
turns his other cheek, and the guy goes, oh, Christian. Okay, that's one thing when you're playing around. But how many of you guys get socked in the cheek, and you're like, oh, oh okay, go for it, you know? <laughs> this is so other than me. You know, it's like Jesus saying, yeah, you have a right to retaliate and you have the rights of this, but here's, here's what I, I'm telling you to do. Turn the other cheek. Take the wrong. Soldier comes up and puts a sword on you and says, go one mile, go with him too. Guy wants to steal your coat, give him your cloak too. What? This total laying down of my rights and does anybody else struggle with this? I'm like just being straight up honest. Like I don't know how to make this real in my life at some point. But he's so beautiful because you know what I love about Jesus? He didn't just talk. They smacked him right in the face and he didn't say a word. They put a bag over his head and with a closed fist punched him and mocked him and said, you're a prophet, who hit you? They tied him to a post and they whipped him, not 39 times, that was a Jewish punishment. This was Roman. They just went until they wanted to stop. And they ripped the skin off from his neck to the bottom of his thigh. And they put a coat on him and they got a crown. They took the time to make a crown of thorns. And then they jammed it onto his brow and got a stick and pounded it into his skull. And then they bowed in front of him and said, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him. They spit in his face. They grabbed the beard and ripped hair out of it. They crucified him on a cross, and the crosses weren't these big, long, you know, lumbered, milled, you know, like pieces of nice, smooth timber or whatever. They were just old rugged trees with a notch and a cross beam, and they were right at eye level so everybody could walk by and just spit at you and smack you and do whatever they wanted to do to you. And Jesus didn't say a word. Oh, I take that back. Yes, he did. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I'm not kidding when I say I don't really have an application for you in this. I'm like, I'm kind of dumbfounded by it. But one thing I do is I just stand in awe of Jesus. How awesome is Jesus? And I know that this is supposed to be part of our lives too, where we're not the kind of people that are demanding our rights and demanding this and, and have this attitude of like, well, you, you, I'll get mine. And, but we're to actually take on the nature of Jesus and at times, take the evil, take the wrong. If it's for the benefit of the person that's handing it out to us. And all I can say when I read this is like, A, I'm so impressed with you, Jesus. <laughs> and two, I can't do that unless you do it through me. You gotta change me because that's not who I am. I'm retaliatory. I'm defensive. I spring back into action. I'm reactionary, and I just want to say, Jesus, would you please make me more like you? <laughs> because if we just act like everybody else, then we'll just be like everybody else. But if we act like Jesus in this crazy world of everything offends everybody, but if we act like Jesus, then we actually shine. And people say, there's something very, very different about you. Amen. 
I don't know what to do other than, can we just pray this in? Can we just ask God to help us with this? This is, this is like rubber meets the road, like real Jesus-style Christianity. So would you guys pray with me? Pray for me? <laughs> Father God, I come before you and I just confess readily I am miserable at, at living like that. It's not where my heart is. If I'm offended, I am so quick to react and type back a response or defend my position. And, and I want to be more like you, Jesus. I think we all want to be more like you. I think together tonight, what we say is, number one, we are so impressed with you and so thankful that you didn't come off the cross when they taunted you and said, just come off the cross. Oh, God, thank you for not coming off the cross or we would have been lost forever. Thank you for taking it.